uh, this morning, chapter 20. I've said this many times that uh, on Sunday, we call it the Lord's Day, of how Christians, the early church, that was uh, pretty much all Jewish uh, in the beginning, why they began to go from meeting on the seventh day Jewish Sabbath, and that's what the Sabbath means, it's the seventh day Sabbath, why they went from meeting as Jews on the seventh day Sabbath to, be, to gathering together to worship on the first day of the week, Sunday. And the reason is, is because of the resurrection. Jesus was resurrected. He rose from the grave on the first day of the week. And think about it, for something to be changed among those Jews who were now followers of Jesus under a new covenant, as Jesus said in that, in that Passover meal before his crucifixion, he makes a new covenant with us. Something cataclysmic, great, spectacular had to have happened for something so embedded in law as an identity of being a faithful Jew as the Sabbath would change that they began to gather uh, on that first day of the week. And it began to signify Jesus as the new lawgiver, if you will, the new covenant maker. And the first day of the week signified the body of believers now. We're not under, you remember the Bible says in John 1 that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. So this was completely different. So the resurrection, you don't have to wait till uh, April. I think this coming year it's going to be the last Sunday in March is when uh, resurrection or Easter Sunday is going to be, uh, but we don't have to wait for that, uh, but we're going to talk about the resurrection this morning. Let me ask you a few questions. Do you know uh, uh, how many days Jesus, after his resurrection, how many days, and you don't have to answer these out loud, it's just kind of for your own interest, uh, how many days Jesus was here on the earth after the resurrection before he ascended into heaven, Acts chapter 1. You know how many days? Forty days. Forty days that Jesus, uh, a month and ten days, that Jesus was here and he was continuing to reveal himself. And in your listener's guide that is included in your bulletin, that little blue sheet uh, that will help you be a much more engaged listener, uh, will help you stay day from daydreaming, at least that's what we hope, but help you engage in Scripture. You'll get more out of the message if you follow along, if you use your Bible or swipe with your phone or tablet or whatever it is you have. But if you notice on the back there, and I won't go through these, I put on there the various uh, post-resurrection appearances that Jesus uh, had uh, during that 40 days. And that's on the back there that you can have as a reference. Do you know how many people that... Uh, that saw the resurrected Lord? Well, there's a little bit of a trick question because we're not really sure how many people, but we know from Paul's testimony, he had a testimony that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at one time. At one time. You know, there are those that want to counter the idea that a man rose from the dead and that these disciples were so emotionally distraught that they hallucinated, you know, because of their emotions being so fatigued at the death of Jesus, 
that they hallucinated and seeing something that wasn't reality. Well, that could be maybe, maybe an individual case, but how do you get 500 people to hallucinate the same thing at the same exact time? Doesn't make sense. But anyway, over 500 people saw Jesus resurrected. And in John chapter 20, we're talking about the resurrection and uh, this morning and the worship. As I was looking over the order of the songs, I don't get involved with that, and you, you ought to be thankful I don't. Um, but I was looking over it last night, and I asked my wife, I said, did you know what I was preaching on this morning? And she, we don't coordinate, we probably should, you know, right? We should figure it out instead of just on the way. But she does her, she, she stays in her lane, I stay in mine. But all these songs, uh, or most all of them, were about the resurrection, talking about the resurrection of Christ, and fits so well this morning. And in John chapter 20, the chapter begins with the greatest question mark in human history and ends with the greatest exclamation point in human history. The question mark is the fact that Jesus Christ, who was, uh, you know, they believe was to be the Messiah, the only problem was this one that they put their hope and confidence in as the Messiah, he's not on the throne in Jerusalem or even in Rome as the king. He's in a tomb and his body's been laid there. That's a question mark. What's, what's happening? But the chapter it ends, and in this chapter is the biggest exclamation point in the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that the tomb is empty. And I know many of you have been to Israel, some of you have, and you've been a witness in seeing the empty tomb. And this morning, as we look at the empty tomb from John's eyewitness news here, John is an eyewitness of the account of the resurrection. We're going to look at uh, the empty tomb primarily through the lens of Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, and called Magdalene because more than likely she was from the village of Magdala, which is on the uh, western side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Mary, you know, there's a lot of Marys uh, in the Bible, but this particular Mary, uh, the gospel writers in Luke 8, um, Mark 16, speak about that she was, before she became a follower of Jesus, that she was uh, demon-possessed, and Jesus cast out demons uh, out of her life, and she became a follower, she became a faithful traveler uh, with Jesus that Luke uh, tells us about that. And so here we see from John's recording, John's uh, uh, witnessing her testimony and his own testimony, we see the resurrection account here. And again, as I said last week, uh, it might be good to have Christmas in July talk about the birth of Jesus and talk about things that sometimes we talk about seasonally because we tend to pay attention to it because in the seasons, we just kind of like, yeah, that we expect to hear sermons about, you know, the baby Jesus at Christmas and, and the birth and nativity, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're listening to it in July, you're like, well, this doesn't seem to fit because we think that's only, you can only do those things certain times a year. But how many of you know you can do it anytime you want? Because, right? So we're talking about the resurrection this morning as that's where we are in our study. And in John 20, verse 1, before we get into the the heart of the message. I want you just to notice in verse, chapter 20, verse 1, three details just in the setup here in verse 1. Notice the first detail in your order, depending on your 
version of the scriptures here uh, may be a little different. But notice the first detail in the New King James uh, is that, um, or in the uh, uh, NIV, I think maybe they have it, but that the first detail is this was early, kind of the second middle part on the New King James that's on the screen. But this is early. Uh, this would have been primarily between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It would have been dark. It would have been very early in the morning. I remember one time when I got my son up, he was little, and we were going to go fishing early in the morning, and it was still dark out. And I will never forget, he said, Daddy, I don't want to go fishing at night. Um, I said, it's not night. It's early in the morning, right? So this was very early in the morning. It's still dark. And, uh, and the reason was that the tradition of the woman going to the tomb or those who cared for the individual that was uh, buried is the tradition of the Jews was to go to the tomb for at least three days after the person was buried there to take care of the corpse, the body, to make sure the uh, various spices were all in the right places and that the body uh, was settled in, into the place where it would be buried. Uh, they couldn't go on the Sabbath day. They couldn't, as Jews, couldn't do any labor or work, and so that's why she's going uh, on the, the first day of the week, had to wait until Sunday. The second detail, which is kind of on the first part of the verse, chapter 20, verse 1, is that this is on the first day of the week. And I mentioned that earlier, that this would be on Sunday. And the third detail is that the stone had been taken away. Uh, your version might say that it was removed or rolled away. It's interesting because the, the word uh, in the Greek can mean, can mean tossed aside. I think that's interesting. In other words, this wasn't, and we know from Matthew 28.2, we know that an angel, the angel of the Lord descended, it said, and rolled back the stone, Matthew 28, verse 2. And if it was tossed aside, just think about the power of God uh, in that massive stone. Now, the reason the stone was put there was, in, uh, was to keep people out, and in theory, I guess they figured keep Jesus in. I mean, that tells you a little bit of maybe their paranoia that a dead man could escape, but nevertheless, they made sure that heavy rolled, that stone was put in front of that tomb. But the Bible says that it was uh, when Mary Magdalene came to that place of burial that the stone had been tossed aside. And I just love that. I don't know if the angel used part of his wing or what he did just to flick it off, but nothing was going to be an obstacle to the resurrection of Christ, it was not. It was. Uh, it wasn't uh, put aside. Um, we know that uh, certainly it wasn't to keep Jesus in there. We know nothing could do that. But I think again, the the stone was rolled away, not to keep Jesus in, but to let us inside. Hello, it was to let us look in there and see what there's an empty tomb there. It's empty. The body is not there. And that is the distinctive mark of Christianity is we worship a living Savior, a risen Savior. You know, we have as our symbol, uh, many symbols, the early church used a, a fish, uh, and they had different markings, but traditionally a lot of times we have a cross, we have one behind us here, and it's just, again, a reminder, and the cross really kind of is the full, you know, picture 
of the death, burial, and resurrection. That's the reason really Protestants have never used crucifixes with a body on it because, again, it, we signify and believe in a in a resurrected Lord, okay? And so, but really, if we wanted to be honest and we wanted to be accurate, a better picture or emblem of the church, of, of Christ rather, shouldn't be a cross, it should be an empty tomb. That's the picture of Christianity as opposed, and the distinctive of Christianity as opposed to other religions, uh, Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, Political leaders, Lenin, Stalin, all of them, guess what? Some part of their decayed body is, is located still in the earth. But not Jesus. Jesus' tomb is empty. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb, and let's read again verse, uh, verse 1 and verse 2. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And that's kind of a, a way referring to the Apostle John, who's the eyewitness of this uh, testimony. She came to Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Which is interesting, her wording there, she says they, one of the accusations of the early believers was that the disciples had taken his body and hid it to purport this uh, falsehood of resurrection. Which again, doesn't make sense knowing the historicity, and uh, if you want to get any details on this, we've, I've preached several times on the evidences of the resurrection in times past. You can go to the website and listen to those. And, uh, but it doesn't make sense because every one of these disciples, maybe the exception of John the Apostle who died on the island of Patmos uh, as a prisoner, all of these disciples were martyred or killed because of their refusal to renounce Jesus as Lord. Their refusal to renounce the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, human nature, you might believe things that you believe are true, but aren't. But it goes against human nature that when you've got a gun to your head, or you've got a blade to your throat, you're not going to keep pushing a falsehood that you know for a fact is a lie. It goes against human nature. And every one of these went to their grave speaking of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody ran it. Why? Because they were, they, they were there. They saw it. They testified. Thomas touched him. And we'll uh, look at Thomas maybe next week. But so uh, she ran to get Peter and said, they, that means somebody's uh, stolen the body. And she thought maybe the Romans had come, or maybe somebody had, was playing a trick on them. It, it doesn't really say, but she thought something horrible had happened. I didn't know this. Uh, maybe some of you history folks knew this, but there was an attempt uh, uh, back in the uh, oh, 18, late 1800s. There was an attempt by individuals to steal the body out of the tomb of Abraham Lincoln. And they were going to take the body out 
and hold it for ransom to get money to get it back. And the Secret Service, which was at its early stages, uh, found out about it, and they reinforced the uh, tomb there in Springfield, uh, Illinois. And, uh, but can you imagine what, uh, what kind of uh, um, <laughs> catastrophe that would have been to the morale to have something... And again, when I say sacred, I just put that in quotes, something to be desecrated, something that would be honorable to be desecrated in such a way. But Mary, what is she? Verse 2, she's confused. She's panicked. She says, they've taken the Lord away. So this morning, I want us to look at a few things in Mary's experience and talk about the reality and the truth of the resurrection. Again, this is for believers, those of you who are here that are followers of Christ, we're not trying to articulate the various uh, apologetics. That's what it means to talk about evidences of the resurrection. Uh, there's great resources that do that. One of the ones that have been really helpful in my life that's classic is Josh McDowell's uh, book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and that covers a lot of areas. And uh, so if you're interested in that, there's a lot of resources, as I said, if you go back on our website and look around uh, different messages around uh, years past in the spring, you'll probably see, again, messages that were done on the resurrection, and I go through these periodically. But this is really for an encouragement this morning for us who are believers and how, like Mary, a follower of Jesus, a believer, but how many of you know the faithful need faith? Right? The faithful need faith. And so, this eyewitness nature here, and so let's pick it up in verse 3. Peter, therefore, went out, and the other disciple, that's John, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, John had to put that in there. Now, I don't know if he knows this is going to be recorded in the eternal word, but he just had to let everybody know that he ran faster than Peter. Just saying, all right? Uh, he, he, that's, he just put that in there. Verse 5. But again, I want you to pay The reason I point that out is notice these little details. This is the kind of thing that somebody who was there remembers it vividly. John uh, probably wrote what we call the Gospel of John that we've been looking at. Uh, probably wrote it within 50 years of when the event happened. But the event was so fresh in his mind, he could vividly recall the details, right, as he is testifying or writing this account. So they both ran together, verse 5, and he, Peter, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came, I'm sorry, early that would have been John. Then, verse 6, Simon Peter came, following him, following John, and Peter went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Verse 8, then the other disciple, that's John, referring to himself, who came to the tomb first, went in also, he didn't go in at first, but he went in, Remember Peter? Peter's just kind of, you know, I mean, that's Peter, just rushed right in there, right? John's a little more cautious. And then, then John, verse 8, went, went into the tomb. 
uh, and when he saw what he when he saw the 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 things that are in there and the the linen clothes it says when he saw what he saw and he saw and believed when he looked in there he believed he believed uh, but in verse nine for as yet meaning at that time fifty years later they have understanding of what scripture would foretell. But at that time, they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Remember, Jesus spoke many times about his resurrection. One that got him in a lot of hot water among the Pharisees and religious leaders when he talked about, you destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And they thought he was talking about the destruction of the Herod's temple there in Jerusalem, but he was speaking of his own self when he said... I will raise it again. His own self is the temple. And so the disciples, again, like many of us, they, they understand, but sometimes understanding and the connecting of the dots spiritually came later as they began to see the testimony of the Word of God. And so this morning I want to see the resurrected Jesus Christ as we see it uh, a little bit through the eyes of Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala, uh, there's several things that I want you to notice here in your uh, listener's guide. You can uh, put these in there and follow along. Number one is that to see and have the eyes, to see the resurrection personally for ourselves, we need evidence for our minds. That's the first thing in your outline. We need evidence for our minds. Is it real? Is this a fairy tale? Is this... You know, is this some fantasy? Is this crazy talk? A man who's been dead for three days has walked out of a grave or a tomb in this case. Evidence. Um, notice in verses 5, 6, and 8, there's three different words there, even though it says see or saw. And there's three different ways that this word is... Uh, is used in these passages. The first in verse 5, where it says that he stooping over or bent over looked in. Uh, that word saw means to look at a glance, to just give a, a quick overview, just to kind of glance in there. You know, like, you know, it's like, you know, like a dark hole or something underneath the house, and you know, somebody will say, just put your hand in there and grab it. You're like, I'm not putting my hand in there. I don't know what's in there, you know, so you might just kind of give a quick glance with something, you know, that's kind of what, it, what John is doing here. He just kind of gives a quick look and a quick glance. Verse 6, when Peter went in and he saw the strips of linen, uh, the word is the word saw, but he, he was theorizing, trying to figure out what took place. So when he saw it, it didn't match his intellect. He's trying to figure out what I mean, you ever look at something? I, again, I remember the day, uh, like many of you uh, that are at least over uh, 30, remember on September 11th, 2001, and for so much of the, that news coverage, I found myself just sitting there, and I wasn't, I, you know, I mean, like, what am I even looking at? I mean, this is, it was so beyond... My mind that, that trying to grasp with the reality there. And so Peter, he saw, but his thing was more of trying to theorize and try to figure out, thinking his way through, come up with some theory or answer of why this be. Verse 8, 
we see that John, when he looked in, his word for saw was that which was to perceive or to understand or to comprehend the truth. He understood God's revealing to him. And so in some ways, that's the way that when we look at the testimony and evidence, you may be here this morning and you just kind of, your approach is just kind of the glance and never really ponder the significance of what is taking place. Maybe you're just kind of a, a drive-by, glance looker at the gospel. Or maybe you're one who's always trying to figure it out. I can't believe, and kind of like Thomas, you know, I can't believe till I figure it out. I need to touch, you know, and, and, and some of that's good. But what did John do? He saw it. And by faith and the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he understood. That's the way God brings truth into our life. Wednesday night in our study on the Holy Spirit, we talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in leading us and guides believers into all truth. And so John looked in there and saw by faith. And as I mentioned, there's various evidences that... uh, and I just want to throw out three here in case you're not familiar with any of these, is one, one evidence, talking about evidence, is the proof of the historical record. You know, there is a historical record, not only the details in the Gospels, but even outside of that, there are outside evidences. One example that comes to mind is the writer Josephus. Some of you may have heard of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian who was a Roman citizen. And Josephus wrote, uh, in that first century, he wrote the Antiquities of the Jews, the War of the Jews. He was a history writer. He was a documentarian, a, a researcher. He had Roman citizenship. In fact, he actually worked for the Roman government. He was Jewish, but he worked for the Roman government for a time as a translator. And he gave a historical record Not that he had faith in Jesus, not that he was a follower, but he gave an outside evidence of this historical man Jesus and a trial and the controversy that Jesus, the historical Jesus, really lived. And some of these events from this outside resource uh, really took place. Again, he wasn't a Christian as far as we know. The second proof among many is the way that the lives of the disciples were changed. I mean, they went from scared. I mean, remember when Jesus was on trial, you had Peter. You know, we give Peter a hard time. But Peter, at least, was in the area. The testimony of the other disciples is they were hiding. They were fear for their life because Jesus said, look, don't be shocked. If they, come, if they came for me, they're coming for you. They're hiding. But what changed? Now, there's a boldness. They're unafraid. We really see this after Acts 2 with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But what made the difference? That made the difference, certainly the empowering of the Holy Spirit. But as I said, in, remember when we studied 1 John, we did... A study all the way through 1 John, the book of 1 John, one of the shorter books towards the latter part of the New Testament. Remember how John the Apostle, same John, begins 1 John 1. He said, we write, we're writing to you 
about those things that we've seen, we've heard, we've touched, we've handled. In other words, John is writing and saying, look, I was there. I'm an eyewitness. I was there. And so the life of the disciples, and then also alluded to this, was the silence of Jesus' enemies. Listen, if the Romans or the Jews, the religious Jews, had stolen the body of Jesus, don't you think a quick, easy way to kind of just snuff this Jesus movement out would have been to do what? Just produce the body. There's no resurrection. You guys are fools. You were taken. We played a gag on you because we knew you crazies would go around saying resurrected from the dead. Here's the body. Here's the corpse. There's no resurrection. And what do you think would have happened to this movement? Would have just died off. Jesus would have been just some maybe at best a philosophical teacher or whatever. So the difference in Christianity is that we have evidence for our faith. Mary didn't really quite understand at this point what she was looking at, but the evidence is an empty tomb. Notice secondly, not only, not only did the Lord give us and has, gives us evidence for our mind, but secondly, we, we need answers for our heart. We need answers for our heart. What difference does a resurrected Jesus make? What difference can he make in my life? Let's pick it up in verse 10 of John 20. Then the disciples went away again to their homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down. And Luke looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had, notice had, past tense, circle that in your Bible, had lain. Verse 13, then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, because they, we're not sure who they are, or in her mind, She's not thinking, you, the Lord. She says, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Again, if the idea is that these people were just so obsessively fixed into this Jesus cult that they imagine this, well, guess what? Evidence is going to be presented that is counter to what she was predisposed to believe. You with me? Some of you were daydreaming about Golden Corral. Let me say it again. She is predisposed to think that they, somebody, has stolen the body. The evidence is going counter to what she's already predisposed to believe. So if this is some big concoction scam, then she and the others have got to be convinced against what they intellectually have already decided couldn't take place. You with me? Verse 14. Well, let me just say something about these angels. You know, we, we think of angels, you know, the way that sometimes we get very artistic in the way they're depicted. But many times they're depicted as just looking like normal, regular folks. In fact, Jesus even, the Bible even says about entertaining angels unaware. Listen, if somebody was in my neighborhood walking around with wings and 
eight feet high. I would not be unaware. I'd probably call the HOA and want to know, who is that guy? No. I mean, if it's unaware, that means they are among you and you do not recognize them because they look just like, remember the angels that came into Abraham? It wasn't like, oh, three angels, but they just look like regular folks. So again, I, I don't know what these looked like, but it, they were in white, sitting, dressing, dressed in this in white uh, radiance there. Verse 14. And when she said this, she turned around, and what did she see? Saw Jesus standing there. But here's, here's what's interesting. She did not know that it was Jesus. She didn't know. I think a couple of reasons to suggest for that. She's, she's in deep, deep agony. When it says about the, her, her crying and the tears, this is, a, this is a word for wailing, weeping. So emotionally distraught. Again, at this point, all she's thinking of is somebody has played a horrible trick or somebody has taken this sacred body of her Lord, and who knows what they're doing or what they plan to do with that. I mean, she is in a traumatized, emotional state. There's been a few times in my life that I've wept so hard that I couldn't see my sight. Maybe that was the reason. But I think also, where is her focus? She's looking at the empty tomb. We saw Jesus, it's just, but her focus is on the empty tomb. Her focus is on the problem. The focus is on the emptiness. And sometimes, listen, sometimes that can happen to us. Is that sometimes our sorrow and our depression and our anxiety is so great, it blinds us to the presence of Jesus that is around us, doesn't it? And sometimes, we're not only blind to the presence of Jesus, but sometimes because our focus is so fixated on the emptiness of the situation that we fail to see the presence of Jesus even in the emptiness. Jesus asked her a couple of questions. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? She comes to the tomb expecting to go in there and take care of it, take care of it and assure that the body is being cared for according to Jewish tradition and ritual. And it's an empty tomb. You know, again, sometimes there's an emptiness when our expectations and our our dreams and things that we thought at this point in my life, certain things should be happening, but they haven't. And the pain and the hurt and the emptiness is overwhelming to us. And she reminds us, because Mary is really no different than any of us. I know that certain groups want to put her into a, almost a secondary level of Jesus. The Bible doesn't do that. But the hurt was so intense and overwhelming that she failed to see what God was doing literally around her. 
Sometimes, again, oftentimes, pain, hurt, suffering, disappointment, whatever you want to fill in the blank, can be so great, we can't see God in anything around us. And your quiet just reminds me that nobody here except me has ever had that. Of course you have. And if you haven't, you will. I read a story about Martin Luther, the founder of the father of the Protestant Reformation. He, uh, his wife was a very godly woman. And one day, Martin Luther, the story goes, was in a deep, dark depression over something that had gone wrong. Most of the time, people were out trying to kill him. That would kind of bum me out, would you? Yeah? Uh, on the third day of this dark place that he was in, his wife came downstairs and she was dressed in all black, kind of mourning, not mourning evening, but mourning like funeral clothing that she would wear to a funeral. And Martin Luther asked his wife, said, who died? And Luther's wife said, oh, God died. And Luther, the great theologian, thought, what? I don't know if he said woman, but like, what do you, you know, what do you mean God died? What do you mean God's dead? God can't die. And his wife says to him, I just thought he had died considering the way you've been acting the last three days. Boy, that's true of us, isn't it? Great men and women of faith. And boy, we could have the rug pulled out from under us. But Jesus asked her another question. He said, who are you seeking? Who are you looking for? In the Bible, God loves to ask questions. In fact, the first question that God asked in the Bible, remember the first question where He asked Adam and Eve, where are you? It's a great question. Now, of course, God knew where He was. God's all-knowing. But He asked that question, Adam, do you know where you are? In other words, Adam, why aren't, do you know where you're at? Meaning, you're not with me. You're hiding from me. Sometimes the Lord needs to ask us, do you know where you're at? Like, I know where you're at, but do you? Do you know where you're at? You're not with me. You're not seeking me. Jesus loved to ask questions too. Remember the five, feeding of the 5,000? He says, what do you, what, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? Um, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Profound, important question. Uh, many times he says, what do you want me to do for you? In John 5, the man at the pool of Beth Bethesda, Beth Bethsaida, he asked him what? Do you want to be well? Sometimes we're always asking God questions. Maybe we need to listen and sometimes God wants, us at, wants to ask us some questions. But notice thirdly, the third thing that happened that helped Mary and helps us to see the resurrected Lord in our life. Thirdly, we need a relationship for my soul. We need a relationship for my soul. You see, Christianity is not based on creeds and religious edicts. It's Christianity is a person. It's a person. It's built around a person. A religion. No, it's a relationship around a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and we need a relationship. We need to go beyond just the intellectual minds, uh, uh, you know, knowledge of a historical reality that God calls us if we are going to understand and and experience the resurrection, the real historical truth for our own personal lives, we need a relationship with Him. He calls us to Himself. Notice in verse 15, Mary, again, mistaking Jesus for the, for the, for the yard keeper. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing Him to be the gardener, the yard guy, said to him, Sir, remember, she's not, she's not seeing Jesus right now. She's, maybe she's not even totally even looking up. She said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me what you've done to him, where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Now, I don't know how big and strong Mary is, but she's got a little bold faith here because she says, let me know what you did to him, and I will, I'll take him and bring him back. I mean, like, really? A grown man? Dead weight body? How's Mary going to do that? But notice that Mary's in the garden, and she's looking to the resurrected Lord, and she turns around and remembers the tears, her focus, she's, her thoughts. She's not thinking that this is what Jesus said he would do. This really happened. She's not there yet, and she mistakes him for the yard guy. How often does God intervene and work in our lives, around our lives, I'm talking to believers, and instead of recognizing that God is with me, that God is my source and my strength, greater is He who is in me. And I think, boy, I was lucky today. Boy, I really called that one, didn't I? We mistake the goodness of God for the gardener. We mistake the goodness of God for our own doings. Our own conniving and scheming and <coughs> knowledge. And Boy, I was really fortunate. I can't believe that I didn't get hit by that car that swerved out in front of me. Boy. Man, I could be on the Indy 500. I'm such a quick, responding drive. No. Jesus. Jesus protected you. Jesus was with you. How were you able to do such and such? How were you able to muster the strength and the faith to endure? There's things we look back in our lives and you say, and I say, I don't know how I got through it. Because I can't, when I look back now, I don't accept the God, grace of God that enabled me to walk through that. You see, you're looking back on your life. You're not giving credit to the gardener. You are focused. You know who was in your life. The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Joseph, remember Joseph's famous remarks in Genesis 50 when he his brothers, Jacob, died. His brothers thought, surely now he's going to wipe us out. Revenge. Maybe that's what you would have done, what I would have done. But I think God gave Joseph a revelation. In Genesis 50, verse 19 and 20, remember what Joseph said? 
Joseph said, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Remember? Like, in other words, the gardener didn't bring me here. All the suffering, the false accusations, the jail, the false promises, all that was done against me. You know what he says? Am I not in the place of God? He said, you know what? All that. God was with me and all that. I didn't necessarily always see him and all that. I didn't necessarily see him in the jail cell and the false accusations. But he said to his brothers, am I not in the place of God for what you meant for evil? God meant for good. Do we acknowledge his presence in our life and circumstances? And sometimes we're so overwhelmed by the pain, it's hard for us to see or focus. But notice something else in verse 16. Mary, it's kind of like, well, you look kind of familiar. But verse 16, Jesus said to her one word. What did he do? He called her name. Aramaic, it's Miriam. Miriam. <laughs> Mary. And she turned and said, Rabboni, which is Aramaic, means teacher. Mary, the name that she had heard so many times, that's all he had to do, was to say, Mary. Mary. You know, something about the resurrection moves from being a historical truth, and I don't want to minimize that, but to bring it down into application or our life, it moves from a historical event, from just a statement on a creed that we recite and affirm, to when we hear Jesus speak our name. That's personal. That's a personal relationship with Christ. You know how important it is for somebody to know your name? I work hard to memorize your names. And a lot of times, you, the ones that are most familiar, I, I flub. I got cheat sheets in the back of my Bible. I don't have a great memory. In fact, here's a little list here. It's old, but I got a whole little list. I know your face, but I need to remember your name. There's something about when somebody speaks your name. What is that? That's personal. You should learn. I know some churches, some of you wouldn't do it because you're just that way. Um, that they come in and every, one Sunday or every once in a while, everybody puts on, wears a name tag. So everybody can learn each other's names. Right? That's a good idea sometimes, isn't it? I don't want anybody to know my It's like, it, that's why we don't do pictorial directories. Because half of you gripe and complain, oh, I don't want my picture taken. It's not for you. It's so we can remember your name and know who you are, right? There's something about knowing your name. I've remembered a couple of people in, in different circumstances, and maybe because I was too embarrassed or too whatever not to correct them. But I remember every time I ran into them, they always called me by the wrong name. I should have said, hey, that's not my name. I was just like, yeah, whatever. It's personal. It's personal. When somebody calls you by your name. Hey, you! Not a hey, you. I, listen, sometimes I'll be in stores and somebody will give me a hey, you, like a sale. And I, will, I know they're calling me, but I'm not going to turn. Look, I'm not a hey, you. 
I'm not a hey you kind of guy, all right? But when somebody calls your name, especially somebody you met, I was fortunate enough to get Bob and Jaunty, what was it, two years? Now that, I'm not making claim, that was a miracle. But we met a couple of years before you showed up and I remembered y'all's names. My point being is this, Jesus, one name, what is that? That's personal. You see, to a person who's a follower of Jesus, Jesus calls us by name. Has Jesus called your name? That's a relationship. What do you think Mary heard? What do you think, what do we hear when Jesus calls us by our name? We hear forgiveness. We hear compassion. We hear love. We hear, I am the one that made you. I know your name. Your names are etched on my hands. Of course I know your name. I'm not the gardener. I'm the one that made you, created you. John 10.3. I love this. It's from the New Living Translation. John 10.3. Jesus said, the words of Jesus, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. He's talking about the, parent, the analogy of being the shepherd and sheep. We, the people, the sheep. He says the gatekeeper opens the gate for him. He's talking about the true shepherd. And the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. David said something really, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 1, David says, O Lord, you see it capitalized, that's an English way of letting us know that the Hebrew name Yahweh, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Now look at verse 17. I've skipped a lot. How precious also are your thoughts to me. David is saying, greater my thoughts. But he says, even greater is that you know me. That you think about me. What is man that you are mindful of me? Why is that important? Because when you're in brokenness and tears and disappointment and heartache and the world you feel like has just come all crashing around you, listen for the shepherd to call your name and bring a word of assurance. That the great shepherd, Jesus, knows you. He knows what you're going through. He knows all the circumstances. He knows you. Why? You're one of his sheep. He knows you by name. And back to John 10, 27. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. 
They don't go after a stranger's voice. You see, that's why we're talking about on Wednesday, why it's so vital of the gifting and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us understand and discern the true voice of the shepherd and not mistake the shepherd for the yard boy. Do you hear what I'm saying? How do you get that? You cultivate learning. Somebody you haven't talked with except maybe a few times. You ever had somebody call you? You don't recognize the number? And they go, hey! Hey, Bob, how's it going? You're like, good. What are you up to? Oh, you know, same old, same old. You have no idea. And finally you're like, who is this? Oh, this is Jack. You know, we met at the car dealership. You walked in last... I don't know who you... You know, I don't recognize your voice. But guess what? Talking about Bob. Your son or your daughter call you. You don't need voice ID. Why? You know their voice. Papa calls them. They know Papa's voice. You see, that's... The relationship God wants us to have. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Maybe this morning you're hearing, not, not audibly, I'm not even saying that can't happen, but I'd, more than likely you're not hearing an audible voice. Try not to shuffle stuff, just please let me. Some of you may need to respond to the voice of the Lord this morning. And you hear, the Bible talks about hearing in our, our heart, our spirit, the impulse, the pull, whatever you want to call it. Again, it may not be an audible, but you clearly know that God is speaking into your life. He's calling your name and the challenge is will you respond to his call the Lord Jesus calls us out of compassion love forgiveness you think the fact that he knows us scripture we didn't read earlier Ephesians 1 says that he chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He knows all about you. He knows you more intimately than you even know yourself. And He calls you by name. And so this morning, do you hear the voice of the Lord Jesus calling you to Himself? It might be called, calling to a greater and deeper relationship and walk might be called to surrender your life for the first time the question is how will you respond how will you respond to him if you're not a follower of Jesus and this is your first moment of being confronted by the word of the Lord calling you by name if you will to be one of his followers to be one of his disciples to respond to His call, His voice. It's as simple as ABC. 
Ask, ask the Lord Jesus Christ. Come into my life. Fill me, Lord Jesus. Believe. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe that you are everything you said you were in the Holy Scripture. You're the sinless one. You're the one who died for my sins. I don't even understand all that, but I believe it. I believe all that. I believe that's true for me. And I confess that you are Lord, that you're Master over my life. You pray just the simplicity and the sincerity of heart. Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 10 says that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved.